If you knew me, you'd know I'm obsessed with water. Hi, we're Hannah Bay, Jasmine Joda, and Teresa McCartney, all T23s. And you're listening to If You Knew Me, a grassroots podcast dedicated to celebrating diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Tech School of Business at Dartmouth. Alan, thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited that we're having our very first conversation with this new season. We're starting off with you, and I'm so happy that you're joining me today. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so I am so interested in learning about where your obsession with water came from, but I want to start from the beginning. Um, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in a, a small town in Minnesota. It's called Austin, right on the Iowa border. And so it's uh, it's very much a factory town. It's where uh, Hormel Foods is located. So everyone, you know, works for Hormel for a living, killing pigs all day. Um, so it's not a, it's not a great town. So I was pretty happy to to get out of there when I was 16. Oh, wow. So where did you go when you were 16? Right, it was like 16 or 17. I moved up to Minneapolis for uh, for college. Yeah, that's cool. Do you think that growing up in such a small town affected how you view the world? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was very, I was very closed off to the world. I mean, there wasn't a great deal of diversity in Austin. And so that definitely was a, a learning experience for me as I you know, went to a bigger city, uh, first Minneapolis and a little bit later, Chicago. Oh, cool. I'm from Chicago, <laughs> you may know. Um, so it's very, very nice to hear that you are able to, we were both able to enjoy the waters of Lake Michigan and Lakeshore Drive. <laughs> um, so cool. That's really cool. I can't even imagine what it must be like to grow up in such a small town and being um, not exposed to much diversity. You, I know that you mentioned you were half Korean. Um, so do you know if there are many Koreans in your town at all? No, there's actually not. So if you look at the, the demographics, it was probably like 70% white and like 29% Hispanic and like 1% other. And so I was, uh, you know, honestly the most Asian person uh, in my high school and I was half Korean and didn't speak any Korean and wasn't culturally Korean at all. So oh. that's, uh, that's saying something there. Yeah. How did your parents end up moving to Austin? Yeah. So my... Yeah, so my dad was actually adopted. So he was born in uh, Busan, then he came over uh, to the U.S. when he was an infant. So, I mean, culturally, he's American, and, you know, culturally, I'm American. It's just, you know, genetically, I'm half Korean. And so it's just complete coincidence. That's where he ended up when he was adopted. Wow, that's so cool. he ever um, really engage with his culture at all um, and then pass it on to you? Were you able to get a lot of understanding? Uh, learn more about the Korean culture through him or was it more on your own? No, I mean, so we, I'm more Korean than him, um, oh. like culturally, I guess. And I'm not that Korean culturally. Yeah. Um, it, it is something I took an interest in. I'm very interested in world cultures, especially East Asian cultures. So it's something I've, you know, learned on my own and experienced on my own, just, you know, through uh, my own travels and readings and, you know, forming friendships with uh, various people. But mm -hmm. really, I mean, that's been purely on me and not so much uh, anyone from my family. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, I always think that it's really cool to learn more about your background. So I was born in the U.S. And even though I was born in the U.S., my parents were Korean and, and spoke Korean with me, I always felt like there was a sense of, um, there was a barrier that I couldn't really fully understand the Korean culture because I didn't grow up there. Mm -hmm. And so I always... 
I, I was so interested in learning more about what it means to, to actually, what it means to be a Korean um, from that culture. And I think it's really cool to be able to dif experience different cultures in different ways. Um, so, okay, so now we know where you grew up and you went off to college in Minneapolis. What did you study when you were in uh, college? Yeah, and so in college, it was um, a pretty random choice. I randomly chose to study chemical engineering one day. And, you know, after I made that initial decision when I was 17 years old or something like that, I just kind of uh, stuck with it. Um, so I didn't really question that. It turns out I didn't really like chemical engineering that much. And so I... Uh, I, I uh... Can't imagine many people do. <laughs> I'm biased, though. Yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, it's like, so that's what I studied and that's what I did initially out of college. But once I realized that really wasn't for me, that's when I decided to make the switch to a more commercial role. Yeah, so what did you end up doing in your commercial role? Yeah, so I became a product manager. Um, so I really enjoyed product management. It wasn't with one of those, you know, fancy software companies. It was uh, for a water technology company. Um, but yeah, I absolutely loved the, the product management role and really, you know, solving all my customers, you know, pretty pressing issues and coming up with creative solutions to do that. I really enjoyed that. That's awesome. It sounds like a, it was really rewarding. Yeah, it was. I mean, I always had an interest in water to begin with. And so getting to, you know, move into that sort of role, I mean, it not only like rewarded me in terms of, you know, enjoying my work, but, you know, kind of a, a deeper level, um, kind of a deeper level meaning I found it working in, you know, this topic or this field I was so interested in. Yeah. So, okay, now let's actually talk about your love for water. What, when did you start feeling so interested in water? The, the, the moment I'd say is, um, you know, I, I really care about social impact and everything I do. And, you know, when I was in college or shortly after graduating, I really asked myself, you know, how do I form this into a career? You know, how do I actually change the world with my career? And just kind of, you know, understanding the world and, you know, through my travels and studying, I really began to understand that water was really one of the most pressing, pressing issues around the world. Um, you know, it's kind of the, the building block of human life and it's, you know, critical for, you know, people that have access to clean water for, uh, you know, for survival and to thrive. And so I really uh, felt motivated by that and really want to, you know, contribute to that on a global scale. And so, you know, from that understanding, I really began in my interest in that field and uh, ultimately I ended up working for a couple of companies in the field and then uh, started doing a lot of volunteer work, uh, you know, for water organizations globally. That's really cool. It's awesome that you found an area that you're passionate about. Starting from the beginning, what made you lean towards social impact? So at first, I think it was probably a little bit um, self-centered. I come from a very uh, low socioeconomic background. And so I always saw the impact that that had, you know, on people specifically, you know, both myself and my family, but virtually everyone in my social circle too. And, you know, from that experience, I really found, I really saw how important it was to, uh, you know, to change that. And I think that really motivated my, my desire for social impact. Um, at first, that was very much focused, you know, domestically because, you know, I was pretty closed off to the world and experienced a lot of, you know, open horizons or anything like that. But, you know, as I kind of got older and began to understand, you know, the bigger picture of everything, I really started to get, uh, you know, a deeper feeling for, uh, I guess, the global perspective. So that really, you know, drew me to social impact on a global scale rather than a domestic scale. I think I really, really appreciate how open you are about where you come from. Something that I know could happen for people who are um, experiencing scarcity is they get into a scarcity mentality. And once that happens and 
many people can tend to want to just take and keep and hold on to whatever they have and not want to give to other people. I think that um, you have a very selfless mentality in what you just shared. You want to use your talents to give to the world. What do you think, I, I'm just curious to know what led you to want to be of service to others rather than just being like, you know, like, all, you know, the people who just want to take everything for themselves. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I'd like to say I'm not selfish, but I'm incredibly selfish. <laughs> kind of beyond that, I mean, it's tough to say. I, I, I really do have faith. I think most people want to do good in the world. It's just a matter of, you know, motivating yourself and, you know, actually doing it. And so I don't know if there's a, a secret recipe for that or anything, but just really, um, you know, from my perspective, I, I started to realize like, hey, I've been given a ton of opportunities. You know, I, I had the opportunity to go to college and to, you know, develop some really specific um technical expertise, you know, through my chemical engineering education, then also through my work experience. And I felt like, you know, being given all those opportunities, I kind of owed it to others. You know, there, there's a lot of people that invested in me on the way to, you know, help me ultimately get to where I, I am. And so I felt like I really owed it to everyone to, uh, to give back. That's awesome. I would love to hear more about the people who, who helped you push you along your path. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple um, examples that come to mind. Uh, so, I mean, the, the first one is, um, like, right before undergrad, I was uh, involved with a great organization called the Horatio Alger uh, Organization. Oh, I know it. Okay, yeah. you know Horatio Alger. Yeah, so did I. Um, yeah, and so I, I met a lot of mentors uh, through that program. So if you're not like Hannah and I, I don't know this organization. <laughs> it's it's a great organization. They do a scholar. They're the largest private scholarship organization for undergraduates around the world, and their their mission is to um, really enable you know, people that have overcome adversity through higher education. And so I, I connected with a lot of great mentors there that kind of helped me, you know, navigate, uh, you know, moving out of my, my family's home and, you know, going to school for the first time and the challenges associated with that. Um, and so I, I think that's kind of like the, the first example of, you know, the, the really, you know, core, you know, folks that really helped me. Because, you know, in my senior year of high school, I actually wasn't planning to go to college. Um, I was planning to become like a truck driver or something like that, since that's what everyone from my town did. Um, I mean, college was never really in the cards for me until, you know, I ran into this organization and they were uh, fortunate enough to give me a pretty significant scholarship for undergrad. And so that's kind of the, the first example I think of. Uh, the second example I think of is, uh, you know, when I was really young, um, you know, my family, we were always, you know, out and about, uh, you know, we were in between houses, we were homeless at times. And there's a lot of folks in our community that, you know, really uh, reached out to us and made sure we, you know, had food or we had shelter and so on and so on. And I think that kind of speaks to the, you know, the community the aspect of things where, you know, this wasn't, uh, you know, solely me, you know, surviving on my own. This was very much, uh, you know, through the help and through the support of others in our community. And so I would you know, give examples of people at our local church and so on that really enabled me to kind of, you know, grow and become where, where I am right now. That's awesome. It sounds like you had a lot of people who were kind in your life and they made a deep impression on you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always try and give back to either those people or, you know, people like them and kind of pay along. And so, uh, you know, kind of going back to this idea of social impact, I mean, that really is the the motivator for, you know, constantly paying that along to, you know, help others just as I've been helped. Yeah, that's awesome. So now we turn to water again. And you've shared that water is a way to really globally impact the world and the, the way that you are passionate about. 
how can you walk us through the discovery of how you found that this can be your mission? Yeah, and so I kind of hinted at this before, but you know, through my education and the work experience I've, I've had the opportunity to uh, you know to learn, I really developed a, a pretty strong technical expertise, which I felt like you know gave me a way to kind of create an overpronounced impact versus you know other things I could potentially work on, and so just looking at from that you know almost uh, you know economic perspective where you know I'm getting the most bang for my buck it made a lot of sense there, but even beyond that I mean there, there's a lot of literature to support kind of the you know overpronounced importance of water. Um, you know, I mentioned like it's a building block for human life, but there's a lot of intersectionalities with it too, beyond just, you know, health and hygiene and so on, uh, with a clear example being, uh, the, you know, the, um, impact of clean water access and gender. Like, I think the, the statistic is on average, uh, people in developing countries need to walk six kilometers a day for access to clean water. And that, uh, that primarily falls on the work of women and children that, you know, is preventing them from, you know, entering the workforce or developing skills or so on. So it creates a lot of, you know, uh, gender disparities, the, the lack of access to water does. And so even beyond just, you know, supporting these communities, you know, at, at the basic level by providing water, we're also, you know, helping break down these, uh, these gender barriers, for example. So that's really fascinating to hear about the gender disparities that can come about because of access to water or the limited access to water. Why did you feel like this was a mission that you wanted to support? Yeah, and I think this kind of goes back to what I mentioned about, you know, trying to have this um, outward global impact. I mean, the areas in the world where this is a severe issue are really the areas that, you know, need the most help. There's the uh, highest rates of poverty and, you know, so on and so on versus the U.S. where, you know, even the, you know, the worst person off in the U.S. can still walk to a gas station and, you know, get a clean glass of water versus, you know, if you're in uh, Eastern Africa or the Middle East or large portions of Central America, that's, that's not the case. And so it kind of goes back to that idea of, you know, wanting to make the biggest impact and really help the people that, that need the most help. And so, uh, you know, me specifically, I've done a lot of work with a very, a, you know, a good number of organizations, uh, especially focused on Eastern Africa. So um, a lot of work in like Rwanda and Kenya, uh, then also um, in, uh, in Central America uh, and South America, like especially uh, Honduras and Guatemala. And so, I mean, when you actually look at it, those are the areas that, you know, where you really can have that overpronounced impact. And there's also, uh, you know, the high rates of poverty, the tends to be lower rates of education and so on, where you know, those folks really uh, can use this help and something I'm, you know, able to hopefully provide at least a little bit of. Bring us into your shoes. The first time you ever visited one of these developing countries, what were you doing? Who who were you there to support? What did you do? Yeah, and so I I think this was the first one. But I remember, um, you know, shortly after I graduated from college, I was working with uh, Engineers Without Borders. And I'm sure a lot of you know Engineers Without Borders on a sanitation project uh, in Western Kenya. It was a small village and orphanage in Western Kenya. And uh, shortly before I got there, um, they actually had finished a project where they were installing a, a chlorination tower to disinfect their drinking water. And the impact of that uh, that project was you know, pretty overwhelming. Um, they went from having something like you know 10 cases of typhoid among the children every year to, to zero after the uh, the project was finished. And you know, going into there, you could you know see night and day how it impacted the the folks around that uh, village and orphanage. Like uh, spirits were much higher. Everyone was you know singing praises to the the help um, and so on and so on. And so that really you know motivated me. Um, so that project was already complete when I'm there. We were uh, there for a kind of a second part of the of a project where we were working on more infrastructure in the village um, that was a little, a little bit longer 
longer term. Uh, so I was just doing a lot of like engineering tests and soil tests and so on to, you know, check what we're working with essentially. Um, the, the one key note is, uh, you know, typically I tried not to travel too much uh, just because, you know, if there's actually any labor to do, it's much more, you know, easy and efficient and cost efficient to hire local labor <laughs> rather than, you know, send someone that doesn't really know what they're doing from, you know, 2000 miles away to go do it. Uh, but I did tend to, you know, travel a lot just to kind of see the impact and if there was any, you know, specialized expertise needed to, to lend a hand there. Yeah, it sounds so cool. I, you know, whenever you see the impact that your work has done, has provided for a community in person, it's so much more, it, it feels so much more tangible and it reminds you of the power that you can actually have and, and the presence that you have in the world. Does that make sense? No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is something to be said about, you know, actually getting to see your impact firsthand. Um, you know, I, I've been, you know, ranting about social impact here for a couple minutes, but this is, you know, ultimately uh, the end goal to really, you know, contribute to the world. And I think it's very important for you to recognize your con uh, contribution if you want to stay motivated and, yeah. and really keep it up. It's really interesting to hear about how much of an impact you were able to see through Engineers Without Borders because from some of the missions work that I did, I didn't feel like we were actually doing much by cleaning churches or we built one house as a group of high school students. And I didn't feel like it was really addressing the core issue of poverty within some of these countries. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because there's a great series of books that were published about 20 years ago by the World Bank um called uh the series is called voices of the poor i think the first one's called something like can anyone hear us but essentially like the the thesis of this study was that you know everyone's talking about poverty and poverty studies everyone that's doing that's you know educated and not in poverty um, and so the World Bank wanted to kind of give voices to the people that are actually experiencing it firsthand. So they interviewed like 60,000 people uh, living in extreme poverty around the world about what they see the issues of poverty being and how it affects them. And, you know, initially you think like, oh, the issues would be lack of food or, you know, lack of employment. But that wasn't actually the most common you know, claim by people that were actually experiencing extreme poverty. Uh, kind of the, the most you know, important things uh, from their perspective were things like lack of community or uh, the humiliation associated with poverty and so on. And so I think, uh, you know, your work actually probably did, you know, do a lot to, you know, address those very important points about, you know, building a community, you know, through this church or, you know, giving someone a house to, to avoid humiliation about, you know, not being able to provide for their children or so on. And so even though it might not have, you know, a very measurable or very known uh, impact, it certainly has impact in people's lives. Yeah. Oh, that's really great to hear. There's so much more, there are so many more factors that go on in the whole, I guess, fabric of not having much in the world. I think this would be a good place to transition over into, I wanted to ask you about Lyft sure. within the tech community. Um, I also share that I came from a lower socioeconomic background and I have my fair share of ideas on how it affected me, but I would love to hear from you 
what your mission is with Lyft and, and how you want to support the tough student body with it. Yeah, absolutely. So for those those of you listening at home, Lyft is a, a new affinity group. We launched at Tuck and it stands for low income and first generation at Tuck. So it's it's a group for uh, you know for folks that either identify with a, a low socioeconomic background or were a first generation college student to really build that community on on campus here. And so there's a, a couple motivations um, Really kind of the, the underlying idea here is, I mean, this is a, a demographic that has, you know, specific issues that, you know, it may be difficult to uh, speak about, especially on, you know, an Ivy League campus, essentially. And so we're trying to, you know, create a space for those sorts of conversations. You know, a, a great example might be, you know, everyone, you know, coming up talks can get a great job. And, you know, that's just kind of expected. But what a lot of folks may not realize is, you know, a lot of, uh, folks from low socioeconomic backgrounds may have family to support, for example. Um, another key example is even just getting to business school to begin with. Um, you know, there's always a risk associated with coming to business school. I think that risk is especially, uh, you know, increased if you do come from a low socioeconomic background where, you know, you've worked so hard to, you know, go from lower class to middle class. And essentially, you know, you're gambling it all on this business school experience to make sure it pays off. And so I think uh, that actually discourages a lot of folks from, you know, low socioeconomic backgrounds from actually entering business school to uh, to begin with. And when you actually look at the uh, kind of the statistics on it, there is some, you know, mathematical reason to believe that's true. Like, I think the number is like almost half of uh, undergrad graduates are, you know, first generation college students where it's like 15% at most business schools. And so there's this enormous gap here. And if there wasn't, you know, some external factor kind of, you know, uh, decreasing representation in business school, you'd expect it to be, you know, pretty proportional to your undergrad graduates, but that's just not the case. And so Lyft, we're trying to, you know, tackle all these uh, issues, you know, both, uh, you know, those entering business school, but then also building this community on campus to make sure the folks that are here, you know, feel like they're supported. Uh, kind of beyond that, the kind of tertiary idea here is, you know, even if you don't associate with this background or identify with this background, you're going to be working with people that are from this background. You know, theoretically, everyone coming out of Tuck is going to be a, a business leader. And so you're going to be, you know, leading with people or being led by people from this background. So I think it's very important to uh, be able to have these conversations and really understand, you know, your, your coworkers and your friends and so on in order to, you know, get the most out of everything. So for people who may not come from the same background that you and I share, how would you encourage them to strengthen their sense of empathy? Yeah, that, that's a good question. You know, off the bat, I do think that folks that talk are empathetic to begin with, but I think there is a kind of meaning and value to be derived from just being very intentional uh, in your interactions with others. And so that may, you know, just really mean getting to know each other, asking about their background, you know, asking about what they find important and really understanding what drives, uh, you know, each individual. Um, I really think that would do a great job of, you know, kind of breaking down all these barriers that separate people and really forming those connections and, you know, developing strong senses of empathy. Well, Alan, I'm so glad that we were able to connect today. I'm gonna end with a semi-fun question. If you could have a billboard in the middle of Times Square, what would you want it to say? So a lot of you have seen my uh, my group me avatar or profile picture already. I just want that up on the billboard. Like I'm very self-centered and I'd love to just have my face up in the middle of Times Square. It would be the ultimate sense of accomplishment. <laughs> 
Oh man, that you will be able to die happy probably. That, <laughs> that, that I yeah. hope that happens one day. I'm gonna have to check the rates. I don't know how expensive uh, billboards in Times Square are. <laughs> well, hopefully that happens one day for you. Awesome. Okay, thanks, Alan. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of If You Knew Me. The If You Knew Me podcast was founded back in the fall of 2020 to help deepen student connections and foster a culture of belonging at Tuck. Please check out our other episodes to support and learn more about other Tuckies. If you have any questions or feedback on the podcast, or if you want to be featured on a future episode, please contact us at the email address listed in the description.